Welcome, guys and gals, to the Man Talks podcast. I'm Connor Beaton, the host and founder of Man Talks. This podcast brings together the best thought leaders, teachers, and extraordinary individuals to teach and mentor you on how to be a top performer in life, love, and business. Imagine having experienced mentors with decades of wisdom delivered right to your ears. On this podcast, we'll talk about things like purpose, legacy, love, influence, sex, success, wealth, and so much more. Don't forget to leave us a review if you've enjoyed what you heard, subscribe, and join the other thousands and thousands of changemakers in our community on Facebook, or go to www.mantalks.com for more blog posts, podcasts, and videos from our live event. So today I have a special guest with me who is going to jam on the topic of peak performance with me. His name is Jeff Salzenstein, and he was a former pro tennis player, former pro tour professional left-handed tennis player, and was ranked in the top 100 uh, in the early 2000s, and also played doubles and was ranked in the top 70 for doubles as well. Uh, so he's an incredible, incredible athlete. He's been playing for a long time. Uh, he transitioned out of tennis playing to teaching and coaching tennis, uh, has had a very, very successful company and organization online and in person for helping other people develop their uh, capabilities in tennis and has shifted into more high performance and peak performance work with CEOs and executives transferring some of his incredible skill sets during his pro career into uh, management, into leadership, and into development uh, of ourselves as business leaders and professionals. So today on this podcast episode, we are going to dive into a bunch of topics. Jeff shares his uh, background, some of his you know highlights from his career, some of his toughest matches, some of his lessons uh, from being a pro athlete, and digs into some of the things that he's learned about leadership, about development, uh, and about how we can perform at our best. So this is straight from a pro athlete. So without any further delay, I would like to welcome Jeff Salzenstein. Awesome to be here, Connor. Thank you so much. So guess what? You're the first tennis player that I've ever had on the podcast. hundred and some odd episodes, you're the first one. I love it. I love it. I'm glad. I'm glad we connected. And uh, tennis has been an amazing sport, and and it's been awesome to go on that journey because it it really mimics so many things that that happen in life. So I'm grateful that I'm in the sport of tennis, and I'm grateful that you found me. Awesome, brother. Awesome. Well, I, I'm excited to dive in. And it's funny because growing up, I was I was you know typical Canadian guy, super into hockey. Uh, and I went to my first U.S. Open last year in New York City, and it was electric. It was like an, it was way better. Like when you watch it on TV, it's nothing like when you're in person. It's totally, totally different. So true. And and maybe we'll talk about my U.S. Open experience uh, on our on our talk. It was a very powerful, one of the most powerful experiences of my of my pro tennis career. But you're right. When I watch it on TV, I talk to people and I say, you know, it just looks like ping pong. And they're just playing ping pong. <laughs> you can't really you can't really see how quick the ball is moving, how explosive these athletes are, how coordinated they are. And and I'm biased, but I think I think tennis is the most demanding sport in the world for a lot of different reasons. Amazing. Amazing. Well, let's let's dive in. I'm going to start off just uh, with the question that we always ask all of our guests, which is tell us a story about a defining moment that has made you who you are today. Yeah, it's I mean, I have a couple, but I'm going to pick this one that that really uh, impacted me deeply. 
I was at a crossroads in my life, 33 years old. I was actually going, having some health challenges. I'd been playing tennis on the pro tour for 10, 11 years. And it was a, it was an up and down career. And at that time I wasn't competing because I had this health challenge. It was a bit mysterious at the time. And uh, we did get it sorted out, but I was visiting my family in Florida and I have a younger half brother. And I walked into his bedroom and he was foaming at the mouth. He had overdosed on drugs. Um, and it wasn't a true overdose because he did live and um, was able to get him to the hospital. But it was in that moment, that defining moment when my pro tennis career ended and I decided to become a coach. I was having a big struggle between should I continue to play pro tennis based on everything that I was going through or should I move on? And at that moment, I decided to help him. I helped him get into a rehab facility. I moved back to Denver, Colorado, where I grew up. I started coaching junior tennis players at the time. That became my passion and uh, it's led me to obviously bigger and better things, although I still love coaching kids. So that was that was a big moment in my life where everything shifted very, very quickly. Wow, man. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. And I mean, I have I have so many questions on that front. I think where, where I would like to pause is really around this this idea of transition, because I think it's so relevant. So many people go through that, not that exact circumstance, but so many people go through a transition in their life where they're heading down one path and all of a sudden there's this sort of fork in the road that shows up, whether it's suddenly or whether it's something that they see coming. Was was this something that you sort of had seen on the horizon leading up to moving away from tennis? Like both situations, you know, first and foremost, did you know that your brother was struggling? And secondly, you know, were you aware that you wanted to start to move away from tennis as, as your career? Yeah, I knew my brother was was struggling. He's much younger. At the time, he was only 17 years old. So he had been using drugs for about five years and it had really gotten out of hand. I never, I did not grow up with my half brother. And so I, w I happened to be by coincidence, although we know there are no coincidences, I was visiting that side of my family when it all went down. And, and I'm a big action taker. So when I saw him laying on that floor, I saw him struggling. I knew that something had to be done because the same pattern was continuing to repeat itself. So I just, I just jumped in there and, and did my thing and took action, said, we got to try to help this kid. He's doing much better now, much, much better now. And uh, this is almost 10 years now since that event happened. He's 26 years old and he's getting his, getting his life together. So I'm really proud of him for that. But for me, the transition, it's interesting you bring that up because I do coach people with with transition as well, probably because I have the experience with it. But um, uh, previous to about six years, uh, six months prior to that event, I had three crying episodes, uh, one with an ex-girlfriend, the second with my father and grandmother who were watching me play pro tennis for the last time. At least I kind of had a feeling. And then my last coach that helped me break the top 100 in the world, they were all at three different tournaments within about a four-week span. And I just kept crying. <laughs> and uh, the, the tears came out because, you know, I've been playing tennis since I was four years old. It was a, it was a sport that my father started me with. There was an internal drive that was really, really deep and just passionate for the love of the game and also to see how far I could take it and to realize that it was probably over to let go, to move on, to do something different. It was really scary. It was really painful. There was a lot of uncertainty. And honestly, I didn't, I guess I didn't have the courage at the time to make the choice to walk away because I still felt I had a lot of great tennis ahead of me. I still believed in, in my tennis. So it actually took a life event 
like what happened to my brother for me to say, I got no choice. I, got, I Well, I did have a choice, but that was the impetus to get me over the top. So up until that point, I was in limbo and, uh, you know, had a lot of, like I said, a lot of fear and uncertainty and, you know, a lot of identity attached to, to my tennis career. Yeah. I think that's the biggest piece, you know, like whenever I see men or women going through a transition in their life, especially if it's work related, you know, it can come up when you're having kids or if you lose a partner or whatever the case may be, but specifically within, within career shifts, you know, when somebody moves from the corporate space to starting their own company or, or vice versa, they move from having their own business and organization that maybe falls apart or they sell it and they go back into a work environment work when they're working for somebody else, they can really shift their, their identity. And I've experienced that in the past as well. When I moved from opera out of, out of singing classical music into, you know, a space of not knowing what the hell I was going to do with my life, it really is a deconstruction of who we see ourselves to be. So what were some of those pieces that you experienced when, you know, you're moving from being in the public light, you know, being a, a pro tennis player and having cracked the, the top 100 and, you know, some of these accolades and accomplishments that you have, because it can be a very specific lifestyle that you're living and you have a very specific identity. How did you navigate some of that transition and what are some of the pieces that came up for you? Yeah, it was really interesting because, you know, when you mentioned career shift and people that are in corporate and they maybe move out of it or, or just they change professions, you know, I'm thinking as you're talking to me and I, and I, and I realized one, I've, I've never been married. I don't have children. Uh, people, women ask me, what's the longest relationship you've ever been in? And I always tell them 39 years, the sport of tennis. I've been playing tennis since I was four. It is basically what I've done almost every day my entire life. So to walk away from something that you've, you've just been so passionate about as a player and to not know what's next is very daunting. And I, and, you know, I, I went to Stanford, I graduated with a degree in economics. I, I actually, you know, could take that degree and do something in the business world and, and have options. But I have a lot of compassion for athletes, professional athletes in particular, whether they have a degree or not, when they transition into the real world, it's a, it's a big change. And so luckily I had a decent head on my shoulders and, and I was able to make the transition actually quite smoothly. And the reason why is because up until that point, there was a, an emptiness actually about playing pro tennis. So being in the public eye, chasing the rankings, chasing the prize money, that actually never did it for me. It was probably one reason I only got to 100 in the world and maybe not 20 in the world because I was more fascinated by peak performance. And I spent a lot of my free time studying nutrition, mindset, uh, fitness, injury prevention. That's That's how I spent the bulk of my time. So I like to think that I actually was playing pro tennis near the end of my career just so that I could study uh, performance. That's really what made me feel more alive. So when I transitioned from player to coach, I immediately felt uh, a sense of a, a greater sense of fulfillment because now I was helping kids, junior tennis players and their parents navigate their way and seeing tangible results happening on a tennis court every single day. And that was really, really inspiring to me. Whereas near the end of my pro tennis career, I wasn't feeling a lot of inspiration because I was getting on planes alone. I didn't have a girlfriend. I didn't have a coach. I didn't have a team traveling with me, didn't have the financial means to do so. So it was a lot of planes, trains, and automobiles alone. And it just felt empty. So for me, 
the unexpected transition that happened so fast because of what happened to my brother, it was, uh, it was a welcome change for me, uh, welcome to force change. It felt better. I was able to move back home to where I grew up. I got grounded again. I had been traveling the world for 11 years, living out of a suitcase, uh, occasionally putting my bag down uh, in, in different places that I was basing. But yeah, being able to come home, get grounded, help a lot of people really uh, filled my cup. Incredible. Incredible, man. So, I mean, it sounds like some of the, you know, precursors for you to be able to move through that transition were already kind of getting into place because of your prior career. And one of the things that I found when I was navigating that transition of the sort of deconstructing the identity was taking the lessons that I learned in the past, what I've learned in singing and everything that I had, you know, taken away from that, that space and that business and started to look forward into the future of what I was going to create for myself and started to see, okay, what's relatable? What can I bring with me? What tools did I learn in the past, in this past sort of career that I can apply in the future? So what were some of those components that you learned from being a pro tennis player that you've taken with you into your into your coaching practice and into what you do now with with your with your executive clients. Yeah, absolutely. So, great thought provoking questions by the way, Connor. Thank you for those. So, for me, I think one big thing is is attention to detail. So, uh I was always very meticulous and detailed as a pro tennis player trying to, you know, dot all the I's, cross the T's, make sure everything was in place with, with my training and my practice and the travel and the nutrition and, and the mindset. And so when I show up to coach people, when I did on the court, and I still do some coaching on the court because I love it so much, but also when I'm working uh, with visionary leaders and with executives, it's really uh, being able to um, see the details, uh, maybe even see the blind spots that others can't see and be able to bring them to light. And I think because I've also asked a lot of questions, I remember I had a coach when I was 14 years old, said that I asked more questions than any student he's ever had, had. I've always been very inquisitive. And so when I'm coaching, mentoring, uh, acting as a corner man uh, to those that I work with, you know, I, I listen, I ask a lot of questions, I take it in. And again, I can draw on, I would say the intuition and experience that I developed as a player on what works, you know, in the moment, in the heat of battle, uh, when you need to make a choice or a decision, which, which path to choose. I'm pretty adept at that and uh, been able to move that into coaching and uh, the world of, of being an entrepreneur, which that was a, that's been a whole new adventure as well with my online business. So uh, I, I've lived a full life already and, and I'm so excited for, for what's ahead with everything that I'm doing. And it's been, it's been a great adventure, a lot of twists and turns in the road, as, as I'm sure you know, those that you talk to and interview have different uh, adversity along the way, but that continue to learn from it. So I would say just to sum it all up, uh, attention to detail, asking the right questions, asking high quality questions, uh, listening, uh, and drawing on that that intuition and, and ex experience, kind of a combo deal there. Nice. Yeah, that's some really, really good insight. And in, in terms of when you're working with people to help them navigate that transition, 
What are some of the questions that you like to ask them to have them bring forward some of those pieces that they've learned in the past? Because I think, you know, one of the things that I would love is for the listeners who are out there who have just been through transition or about to face transition, because the reality is we're almost always, you know, change is inevitable. Change is almost always happening in our lives. And so what are some of the questions that, that you like to ask to just get people in that space of understanding how to navigate that that transition? Well, yeah, before I answer that question, I think one thing I want to share with the listeners is that, you know, tennis, I believe, is one of one of the best sports to really mirror life. I know there's probably golfers out there as well that, that feel the same way. But by working with so many clients over the years and and obviously on my own being on my own journey, I can see that that decisions or things that happen on a tennis court uh, really reflect or mirror what happens in life. So I have an opportunity to coach people, whether it's on a tennis court or off of the tennis court, in how life and tennis just weave together and overlap. And so the questions that I like to ask, uh, well, first of all, when when I'm working with a client, a lot of times just having the opportunity to talk for an hour with me and be able to share deeper things that they're not going to share in the real world is very revealing, uh, very eye-opening and and very uh, healing for, for people. And so that's been really, really cool to experience that they actually look forward to getting on a call once a week and saying, you know what, I don't get to talk about this stuff with other people. And this feels like a really cool, safe environment to do so and to get really solid coaching. But the questions I like to ask, they're what questions. So a lot of times um, I find that when we ask why and how, um, that can kind of close us off and create a kind of a fixed situation. So why does this happen or how am I going to do this? A lot of times we don't even need to know the why or the how if we start with the what question. So, you know, I like questions like what would it take, you know, for this possibility to be created or what would it take to create this in your life? And then then you can just sit uh, with with the person and see what shows up for them. It, It opens up possibilities and awareness. And I think a lot of times we go through life and we have a fixed story about how things have to be or how things are. And when we start asking the what questions, possibilities start to open up. And that's where conversations start to get really engaging, really interesting. You know, what if this happened or what if you made this choice? What would happen if, and then you just see what shows up. And it's really cool to work with people one-on-one in this way and and see them have breakthroughs, not only on a call, like an aha moment, but to to notice several months later that they've really shifted over time and, and they're not the same. They don't have the same perspective than they had several months earlier. So that's, that's really powerful for me. And, and I've been able to see that on the tennis court to see people transform their tennis games. And then those that I work with off the court, it's been really cool to see that too. Yeah. Awesome, man. And I I think that that, those are, those are great questions. Um, just to shift, because I, I know that, uh, one of the things that I was really interested in was, how you came into this sport and what it took for you to to really rise to the top because it's a very competitive industry and one of the correlations that i see between tennis and you know the entrepreneurial space or the business world is that competitive nature is having the edge on everybody that's out there you know because it's it's uh it's a very popular sport so what got you into tennis in the first place? Like, how did that come about? Yeah. So as I mentioned earlier, my, my father was a teaching pro. So as long as I can remember, I was holding a tennis racket and my mother was a player. And then, uh, 
my stepfather, uh, my mom remarried uh, a few years after my parents divorced and he was a player. And so it was just tennis was kind of everywhere. And so what was interesting about it was that none of my parents put any pressure on me. So all of this was an, an internal drive to be really good at this sport. Now I played other sports as well for, for many years, but ultimately I really focused my attention on tennis and, you know, I was very good at a young age. And then the middle of my junior career, I had a huge slump. I, I was late developing. I didn't go through puberty till I was about 16 or 17. All these other guys are about six foot two, buck 70, you know, serving big on me. So I was, I was really, really gifted as a 12 year old, actually a national champion, dropped a lot, uh, middle of my junior career, got it back again and ended up going to Stanford. And that was really the goal was to play college tennis at Stanford university. That was the Mecca of tennis. There were no dreams of playing pro tennis, no big dreams of playing Wimbledon. And then there I actually developed further and improved significantly, developed this, this massive serve is serving 125 miles an hour. And I thought, well, gosh, maybe I'll try the pro tour and give it a few years. And if I, if I don't break the top hundred, then I'll, you know, get a, get a real job, I guess. And uh, a couple years into about a year into my pro career, I was shooting up the ranking ladder. I'd got to 150 in the world and uh, I was uh, riddled with injuries. I had an ankle injury and then a knee injury. Both required surgery before the age of 25. And essentially at age 26, I was starting over again. I had lost my entire ranking. Um, I had signed with an agent, but they couldn't do anything for me because I was damaged goods on the sideline. So I came back at 26 and by the time I was 30, I broke the top 100 for the first time. I qualified at the U.S. Open at age 29. And at that time, 30 was considered starting to be old. And now on the, on the pro tour, those that follow tennis, guys that are in their 30s are dominating. So Roger Federer's 35, about to be 36. So I like to think that I was a bit of a pioneer and that I was doing yoga and, and meditation and drinking green drinks and into organic food, you know, 18, 20 years ago on the pro tour while, while everyone else was looking at me in, with a very uh, strange, many strange looks in the locker room. Um, but that, uh, that journey, I think the journey of perseverance, uh, of adversity, of, of spending a lot of time alone because it's an individual sport. So on and off the court, I was having to come up with solutions and answers uh, for myself and just, and, and just going through, I've gone through ups and downs as a junior player, a college player, and as a pro, and it, it didn't come easy to me. I really had to work for everything that I, that I achieved. And also to realize that I was very gifted uh, athletically. And because I had some mind uh, mindset blocks that I wasn't as aware of as I am now, um, that limited me, limited me from going to the top 50 or even top 20 in the world. So, you know, being able to overcome a lot of adversity serves me well as a coach now. Uh, but also knowing that I fell short in some areas because I didn't have mentorship or coaching like the type of coaching that I can give others today. Mm, yeah, that's, that's really good. So if, if you could look back and talk about those mindset blocks that you weren't aware of at the time that were maybe hindering you from getting into a, a higher ranking, what would some of those be? And what would some, you know, what would they, what would they sound like? Cause I think what's really important for 
for listeners is for for them to hear what those things are because a lot of the times we can't identify you know those those blocks we can't identify those pieces that are holding us back because we can't see them you know and so oftentimes um, I, I found that and I know that you know you've you've worked with a ton of incredible people so. What are some of those mindset blocks that were maybe holding you back from peak performance that you've also seen in other people that you've worked with since then? Sure. So I've got a great story to share, and, and it involves me playing on Stadium Court, Arthur Ashe Stadium, the U.S. Open, 1997. It was the first year on tour. I was 23. I'd gotten a wild card into the U.S. Open. I won my first round against a Swedish guy, Michael Tilstrom. Uh, ranked about 65 in the world. And my second round matchup was against Michael Chang, number two in the world at the time. And we were playing Friday night, Arthur Ashe Stadium, 24,000 people. And here's the little kid from Colorado who wasn't supposed to play pro tennis, who's now six foot one, 175, serving 125 mile an hour bombs. And I'm playing on national TV. John McEnroe is making the call. This is a Friday night before Labor Day. So you've got you know, every bar in New York City and around the country is showing this match. And I remember specifically that day, I was so scared that I was going to embarrass myself in front of the world. So when you look at mindset, that was the dominant story in my mind, in my head. That's what was was circulating throughout that whole day. I actually was, I had created a story that I was going to forget how to hit a ball in front of all these people. And, and maybe as an opera singer, you could relate to maybe forgetting f what you're going to do and how you're going to sing and, and your lines. I felt like, what if I forget? And so I literally warmed up four times that day. Normally you would warm up once or twice for a match, for a night match, but not four times because I was just paranoid that I was going to forget how to play. And so I got out there and I was nervous at first. In the first four games, I played nervous, but I was able to keep it close. It was two all in the first set. And then I finally took a deep breath and I relaxed a little bit. And then I ended up winning the first set 6-4. And the crowd's going crazy. And I remember I had my, my parents in the box, my coach in the box. I had a girlfriend, the fraternity brothers from Stanford. Again, everyone's going crazy. And I looked up my box and I pumped my fist and I smiled. And that was the end of the match because... I had not embarrassed myself. I had won the first set. So instead of finishing, instead of saying, you know what? I'm better than this guy. I'm going to take him down. Like I'm going to, I'm going to crush this guy tonight in front of everyone. This is going to be awesome. I was just happy to keep it close. And, uh, you know, shame on me for having that mindset or at least not being able to switch it and say, you know what? I deserve to be here and I deserve to be at the top of the game. And I think that was the one thing that kept me from elevating is whenever I got up against guys top 10 in the world, I had the physical capability, but there was a little seed of doubt. There was the, the guy, the kid from Colorado that wasn't supposed to play pro tennis. He didn't have that kind of that killer knockout punch and didn't really maybe have someone whispering in his ear that, that I could do it, that I could beat these guys. So that would be, that would be one I guess you could say regret, although again, it's a great story that I can now share with my clients and say, hey, let's finish. Let's go for this because you can do it and, and you've got the skills to do it. Yeah, it's really interesting because like it's almost like for me, what comes to mind is like the reverse David and Goliath syndrome, you know, like David and Goliath got into the ring. David's so much smaller than Goliath and he still manages to win the match. But it was because of that mindset where he 
doesn't really see the difference in size as like the be all end all. He still believes it can he can win. And I know exactly what you're talking about, where you're up and against an opponent or a situation or an obstacle that just seems insurmountable. And it's almost like we let go of that that belief that we can conquer them or that we can conquer that situation or that we can actually win and push through to victory. So I, I love that because I think that that limiting mindset is something that so many people have that holds them back in so many different situations. You know, whether it's launching their own company or getting that promotion or whatever the case may be. So thanks so much for sharing that, man, because like, I feel like that's so relatable to so many people. And, and I, it definitely resonates with me. So I, I appreciate that. Connor, I'd like to, I'd like to add something to that. If that's all right. Yeah, please do. Please. Yeah. Do. So, so the fact that I can share that story with those that I serve, those that I help, I think stories like that, obviously they humanize me. I'm not like, you know, on this pedestal as this top guru coach. It's like, no, I, I've struggled too. I still have my own challenges. I openly share them with my clients. And I think that creates a level of comfort and trust that, Hey, this guy, he's got a lot of experience and a lot of wisdom, but he's also real and he's willing to be vulnerable and share his dark secrets with me too, and the things he struggles with. And I think, so it really, the fact that I struggled obviously connects me to those that I, those that I help. And and that actually, I'm really comfortable sharing those things because I want people to know that we're, we're in this together and we're just trying to get really clear so that we can create uh, even deeper work together and also uh, create that transformation. Yeah, that's a really great distinction because I think for a lot of people, it's just it's the, it's the obstacle that gets in the way, right? It's like that. How can I overcome this? How can I move through that? And I love the I love the piece about the you know not not the guru. I <laughs> I was joking the other day that you know there's that Tony Robbins movie I am not your guru. Yeah, and uh, I was joking around with somebody. It's just like yeah, but you know what? Like so many people are actually looking for a guru. Like that, that's kind of, so many people are looking for somebody to tell them what to do. Like maybe, should, maybe somebody should actually write a book. Maybe Jeff, you should write a book called I am your guru. You know, like it's just kind of like a, like a joke on it. But anyway, um, that's kind of the, besides the point, that's a little, that's a little <laughs> tangent. Um, so one of the things, one of the reasons why I also wanted to pick your brain a little bit on the podcast is because I, I think that there's some huge leadership lessons to be taken from pro athletes. And, you know, you've talked about basically inadvertently grit and determination and these sort of, um, regiments that you had. How do you see the, how have you brought this, this sort of peak performance from when you were a pro athlete into the work that you're doing today. So if there's, you know, career professionals that are listening to this or uh, entrepreneurs, what are some of the key pieces that you would want them to know about being able to perform at our best? So I think the biggest thing, I mean, we talked earlier about asking questions. I really believe that's a great starting point for people to, to start asking questions about either what is it that they desire, you know, what are they, what do they want to change about themselves? What do they want to be better at? Because when you ask questions, you know, the answers start to come, they start to open up. And uh, I feel like, again, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of people just typically have a fixed mindset of how things are. And when we start asking questions and we start opening up to possibility, I think that is a huge starting point uh, for peak for peak performance in life, just opening up that awareness of, of your thoughts 
And I'm a big, I'm a big believer in communication and the power of words. And so a lot, a lot of individuals are not even aware of, you know, the words that they speak or the thoughts that they have. And so just really starting from that place of, of getting clear around how they're showing up in the world with their communication, not only with others, but with themselves. And this isn't just about, you know, the power of positive thinking. I really just think it's becoming aware in the first place. Like, let's just start there because I mean, I'm cool with people having negative thoughts or, 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 you know, thinking negatively as long as they can shift into a different place where they can find solutions and, and start to come up with possibilities from the questions that they're asking. So from there, uh, that to me is, a, is a, just a great starting point. So again, just to summarize, I would say asking, you know, high qu quality questions uh, to yourself, uh, to your, to your coach or mentor, uh, to the universe, to God, whatever you believe. And then just being aware of how you communicate again with yourself and, and with others around you and being very, very uh, conscious about that level of communication. Again, the power of word is, is so, it's just so important to creating your reality and moving in the direction that you desire. Mm, yeah, that's incredible, man. I love that. I love that insight. In terms of the work that you're doing today, because you've started to like really coach and teach and mentor people on not only tennis, but, you know, peak performance in all areas of their life. How have you seen your own personal leadership develop as you've stepped into this space? And what are some of the transferable lessons that that, you know, from tennis have shown you um, some of the some of the core attributes of leadership? Yes. Yeah, so I I think that leadership for me is, I mean, I, I believe everyone's a leader. You know, if they choose to show up in a way that inspires other people, even if it's just one person, then, then to me, you, you're a leader and you're exhibiting leadership. And so it's how, how do we show up uh, with others? How do we communicate with others? How do we inspire others by the way that we live? And so, you know, I've been lucky that through tennis, I've learned so many lessons as a player, you know, work ethic, commitment, attention to detail, attitude, you know, pumping yourself up when the going gets tough, uh, and then being able to do it as a, as a tennis coach and to see where people are limited on the court and, and then to step off of the court and jump into the, the world of entrepreneurship and to manage a team. I've got a team of people overseas that are helping me with my uh, online digital digital marketing uh, company and to be able to uh, inspire them and get them uh, to move forward uh, with their lives uh, and to help me with my business and to feel really good about belonging to something that's really special. And then again, to show up and work with people one-on-one -on -one and to really dig deep and dive deep and find out that there are just so many metaphors between uh, tennis and life or sport and life that you can apply. And I'm so lucky that I have people that I work with that they really do show up as, as true pros in their lives in different, different ways. And, and some are, are more professional in their, in their sport and their chosen sport. And maybe they're struggling with some things in life or, or others are really showing up in business, but maybe they, they get uh, down on themselves on the tennis court and they're trying to work through that. So it's been really interesting for me to see how we all show up uh, in a more directed, clear, positive way. And uh, I just, 
I, I feel so blessed. Like every day I wake up and I'm like, wow, I'm a coach. And, and I also, when I do a coaching call, I get inspired by those that I work with. It gives me more momentum. So it's the perfect fit for me and for what I'm doing. And again, as we talked about earlier, as a, as a player, there was something missing. Like I loved playing pro tennis. I loved the journey. I learned a ton of life lessons, but little did I know those lessons from being an athlete were going to, um, have me become, you know, a coach. I really didn't know as when I was playing that I was going to be doing this work 10 years later. So it's pretty cool to see how that level of fulfillment for me has increased because I've become a coach in this way. Mm, nice. And it, let's just, let's just shift and, and keep talking about peak performance a little bit, because I think that that's, it's something that a lot of people are interested in, right? Like growth hacking and how do you hack your state and all this other kind of stuff. So how, how would you define peak performance? Mm. It, I've thought a lot about this, you know, because you've got the Ben Greenfields and the Tim Ferriss of the world who are, you know, hooking themselves up to, you know, taking blood tests and have different contraptions all over them and doing all these tests. And for me, I think maybe because I'm left-handed, I'm more of a creative type. I'm I'm not I'm not as into the science and the data as I am to integrating um, specific lifestyle choices that work for that person. So waking up every day at the exact same time and meditating for 20 minutes, and then doing your affirmations for 10 minutes, and then you know working out for 45 minutes, like having that structure, that's not really something that resonates with me. I like to take more of a like a malleable, like, what do I need in this moment approach? And so if you start to integrate different habits, if you will, or different choices into your daily life, and really just live from this place of like, what feels good to me in this moment. So if, you know, if you eat healthy, you know, super healthy six days a week, but you feel like having dessert, like, go ahead and do that. Like, don't be so rigid in the way that you go about your performance or your life hacking. You have to allow yourself some space uh, to shift out of that. So I take a more open approach of, of where can you integrate uh, some time for stillness in your day? You know, what would it take for you to um, find ways of, of self-care? I think self-care is a, is a wonderful way uh, to perform, to look at performance. Like how are you taking care of yourself? Are you getting a massage once a week? Uh, are you stretching? You know, what would it take uh, for you to get eight hours of sleep? So really, again, going back to these really simple things that we kind of forget about and seeing if we can start to, you know, weave one or two of them in at a time and just see how it feels. My approach again, like I said, is, is more, what feels right in the moment? Like, what do you feel like doing? And yes, it's good to have some structure, no doubt. But uh, whenever it's super structured, I start to think, gosh, is, is that really sustainable uh, to be the ultimate life hacker day in and day out? It, it seems like a, a pretty um, obsessive way to live. Yeah. Yeah. I like that because it's more of a holistic approach to, to peak performance rather than a regimented take these five vitamins, turn around six times, meditate for five minutes, you know, X, Y, Z sort of a, a approach to peak performance. And especially some coming from somebody who, you know, has achieved a, a pretty specific level of, of performance in their lifetime. It's, it's really interesting to hear. So how do you, how do you feel people can leverage their creativity in order to achieve performance? Cause I, I, I hear that a lot, you know, I hear this idea that, well, I'm more of a creative person. So 
having the regiments doesn't really work for me. And this is something that I'm really fascinated by because you see a lot of executives, you see a lot of people in the corporate world who are trying to jam themselves or even in the professional world, they're trying to jam themselves into this box of what it means to be a peak performer, right? Up at 5 a.m., do the journal for 15 minutes, do the meditation 15 minutes, and it's, it's very militaristic. But for a lot of people, they try that for a month or two, and they're just miserable, and it just doesn't work for them. It doesn't produce results. Yeah. So how do you feel creative people, more creative people, can tap into the sort of quote-unquote flow of finding a, a higher state of performance? What are some of the things that, that they can sort of do on a, maybe not a daily basis, but a weekly basis to sort of test, experiment, and, and try out? Right. So I think one is to bite off things that you can chew that, that feel good to you. So if, if it's sitting in stillness for one minute or for two minutes, to me, that's peak that's peak performance. If it's going for a walk in nature and you only have seven minutes before your next meeting, you don't have to do it for 30 minutes. Like doing little things like that, that can build momentum. And then obviously having a a support group or a coach that can uh, either help you be accountable or support you on that. I think that's huge. So, so small doses. And I think what's even more important, Connor, is I think I'm really fascinated by this concept of acceptance or even forgiveness, because as you were talking about that, you know, that diligent uh, military style approach to having to do all those things. And then after a month or two, you're, you're just so over it. It's like, it's almost another form of not being not good enough. And so when you're doing all that, and then it's just like, gosh, is this enough? Did I do enough? And so really, I think spending more time and just accepting that we're okay and it's okay to make mistakes and actually practicing um, to get a little bit of woo here, but you know, more self-love, like it's okay to only work out for five minutes. Like you don't have to do the hour and 20 minute power yoga class. Like it's okay. That, that concept again of just acceptance. And I don't think we spend enough time in that space being okay with where we're at right now. Like there's this constant push to do more. And I know it's interesting because we've been talking about peak performance and that implies that, you know, you have to do more and you have to push, push, push. And I've seen so many athletes burn out because they're doing that. And obviously a lot of executives and, and entrepreneurs and CEOs are burning out. So really just finding that balance between peak performance, but also acceptance that what I'm doing right now is okay. And I don't have to compare myself to what others are doing. And if I need eight hours of sleep, then I'm going to take eight, eight hours of sleep when others only get five or six. And it, it comes back to, again, just finding that balance between the performance where it's it's you're moving forward in your life, but you're also okay with where you're at right now, more than okay. And uh, I'm fascinated by finding that, that balance. Um, it's been 10 years since I played pro tennis. And I like to think that I'm pretty fit. Like I look pretty fit on the outside. Um, I don't train probably as much as I'd like to be right now. Um, again, I'm not fanatical about it. Um, I think I was probably fanatical for many years as a pro athlete, but I think that I've taken pretty good care of myself the last 10 years. So it hasn't been this idea of like extremes, like I'm going to binge on terrible food and then I'm going to be healthy for a month. And then I'm going to, it's just been kind of this steady process. And you know what, if I miss a couple of days of meditation, it's okay because I'm still 
in a good place. I still feel uh, like I'm supporting myself and, and taking some time, even if it's a couple minutes to take a deep breath. So it's just really just about managing that performance. I don't think there has to be this obsessive drive, especially in a culture where we're so obsessive, you know, to begin with and having to push to the next level. I like it to be a little more organic and a little bit more in the moment with what a person needs uh, in that moment. Awesome. I I like it, man. I like it. I I think that that's some great advice for people that are out there that maybe don't work so well with the regimen. I know I tried it for a long time and I find that the fluidity is much more uh, advantageous for myself being, you know, a very creative background. And I seem to get much more work done in that space. So I really appreciate that insight. Um, just because we need to start wrapping up here, um, because we're coming to the end of the interview, I'm just curious, what are you really excited about moving into the future? Like what do you have a book coming out in the future? Where can people uh, get some insight from you? What's on the horizon for, for you, Jeff? Yeah, you know, I, I do feel I have a, a book or two in my future, but right now what, what I'm really excited about and, and in the near future is I've been passionate about my online business for several years. It's called Tennis Evolution. Um, but I'm really, really stepping into the deep dive into one-on-one coaching. So that's really, really, it's just really important work. And I want to go deeper with, you know, certain individuals that really resonate with, with what I'm all about and, and how I think I can help them. And then from there, I, I see this expanding into, uh, more corporate and group training and, uh, it really remains to be seen uh, where I go with it in terms of, do I want to share the content uh, in an online space? I mean, I've been in the online space for about six years now. And like I said, this, this one-on-one uh, interaction and then moving into to more of the corporate uh, type work really fascinates me. I'm really interested uh, in it. And anyone that's listening to this, if they want to get in touch with me, uh, they can send to my personal email address. And it's uh, jsalsatme.com, jsalsatme.com, S-A-L-Z. And uh, yeah, they, if they're interested in everything or anything that I said today uh, and the interaction that we had, Connor, uh, they can just shoot me an email. I'd love to hear from them. And uh, we can pop on the phone and have a conversation. Awesome. Thanks so much. I love that you have the old school at me.com address. <laughs> so good. I think I got um, it like 10 years ago and uh, still have it. Exactly. So good. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for joining me today, Jeff. And for everybody else out there listening, you can check out mantalks.com for more podcasts, blog posts, and videos from our live events around North America. Uh, Don't forget to write me and let me know who you would like to hear on our podcast and the type of information you would love to download into your brain. So until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off. Join us next week on the Man Talks podcast for another inspiring conversation with another inspiring man. Yeah.